Hello, and welcome back to the Pep Talk Podcast. This episode is with The Last Taboo, a student-led campaign aiming to address sexual assault and harassment at universities across the UK. Me and my friend, Dom Smith, who you might remember from the Peter Hitchens episode, had an open conversation with The Last Taboo's founder, Imogen Horrocks, and the Club of Pep co-president, Molly Puffett, about the culture at the University of York and how we can do better in supporting those who have experienced sexual violence. This episode has a trigger warning because of the sensitive nature of the topics discussed. But that's it for me. Let's get into the episode. Molly, Imogen, Dom, thank you for uh, for coming on the show for this episode. Thanks very much for coming. Thanks for having me. So we're gonna we're gonna jump into this uh, sort of a conversation um, that we kind of planned on having. Uh, a, a few months ago, since the Club of Pep is going to be sort of working with the Last Taboo and uh, and other organizations in this next year, and uh, sort of the the thought behind the episode was a couple of the the male members of the Club of Pep committee just asking sort of sort of questions and kind of kind of uh, being part of this this conversation about sort of sexual violence and, and and sexual assault. So if we sort of get into it just by uh, Asking about the the last taboo, um, your your organization, uh, Imogen. What what exactly is it, and what's your involvement with it uh, this year? Yeah, so I am one of the co-founders of the Last Taboo, and the Last Taboo was um, originally a campaign set up to tackle the issue of sexual violence at the University of York, and we've since kind of expanded to become our own organization where. We're currently in the middle of expanding nationally. So we're looking at actually tackling these issues within a variety of different universities across the UK, not just York, because unfortunately it is an issue present in just about every institution up and down the country. Yeah, I gotcha. And uh, so with looking at the University of York more specifically, um, you've had some, some criticisms of university policy and the way that they approach these issues. Uh, what sort of factors or uh, failures have you identified just on on the part of the university? I think perhaps the biggest um, failure that the university has is their inability to communicate properly with students. Um, there is kind of a real lack of communication, clear communication between what the university is doing behind the scenes with the policy and how that impacts students. So students often don't know what's going on. They don't think that anything's being done to change this issue. They don't know where to go for help. They don't know how to report. Um, and I think it, it's increasing the communication and making it clear is the key step to tackling such a big issue. And I think the other kind of overarching factor that has led to this campaign being necessary is that the university cares a lot about its reputation. And sometimes that can blindsight other issues, um, which perhaps are more important and this is something specific university York. it's the case for many universities like I said up and down the country um reputation is a big thing for all of them and sometimes that can um get in the way of seeing kind of a bigger picture of what's going on on campus yeah I gotcha yeah uh Dom you want to you want to take the next one yeah Sure. Why, why are these sort of questions which which you've referred to there? Why have they not been asked in the mainstream earlier on, do you think? Yeah, I think, I mean, we named our organisation The Last Taboo, and I think that gives a big insight into why it's not being talked about. It is such a taboo topic, and 
they're not easy conversations to have. A lot of people shy away from them and that is completely understandable. But unfortunately, we're at a place in society now where we can't ignore this issue any longer. It has kind of infiltrated its way into kind of every corner of institutions. It's not just a university issue. It's also education. I think, yeah, it's it's really kind of become more of a mainstream topic now, but it definitely hasn't been kind of in the past year. And you mentioned uh, there about the university being so confident in uh, upholding its reputation, which is you know, understandable, but do you see it as the, the last taboo's responsibility to um, to call the reputation of the university into question as, as the, the main priority when, as you say, this is a, an important topic which is perhaps more important um, at moments where there are odds with each other? Yeah, I think it's getting the university pushing them to kind of reset how they see their reputation because their reputation should be hindered if they're not safeguarding their students properly, if they're not putting the correct measures in place to make sure students are safe. Um, and actually by reframing what you want your reputation to be, I think that then helps a lot of students out. And so we've worked really hard to try and get the university to see that actually talking about this issue doesn't affect their reputation negatively. If anything, it makes students see that they're trying to be pan- transparent and actually engage in such an important conversation. Has has seeing that and identifying that sort of incentive structure for the university wanting to maintain its reputation changed how you uh, approach this conversation with the university and approach sort of criticisms of the university that could damage their reputation? Um, we've tried to be incredibly fair in the way that we've worked mm. with the university um, and they've re- been very receptive to us. And um, we're incredibly lucky that we've had such a fantastic working relationship with them, um, but it has taken kind of several months to build that relationship and unfortunately um, when you start something like this you want to see results kind of in the first couple weeks but it it takes a long time um, because you you have to kind of trust each other and we've worked really hard to build kind of a level of trust with the institution Um, but I think we've done it in a way that is also keeping students informed in what we're doing and what we are working with the university on Um, and I think that our report was a big part of that. Yeah, I actually uh, I, I have a question here just uh, about the report. It's the the sexual assault and harassment at the University of York report. What uh what started that report and and uh, how has the university re- responded to it uh, since it was published? Yeah, so I mean, when Kelly and I started this organization, we knew that there were a lot of issues. Um, we maybe were a little bit naive as to how many issues there really were, um, and we thought that actually the most proactive thing to do would be to compile a report where we can help to amplify the voices of students on campus. Um, We did it in a way that we consulted with hundreds of students to hear their thoughts and opinions on the way that the university handle um, instances of sexual misconduct. Um, The report effectively compiled their thoughts, opinions, um, and within it, we highlighted what was working well at the university, but also the things that needed changed and how that that could be done. So we provided them with a set of 51 recommendations um, that would allow them to change their policy in a way that would benefit students. Um, And I think we got our official response back from them a couple of days ago and it's been largely really positive. They've taken the time to respond to every single one of our recommendations and even for the ones where they maybe can't implement them yet or there maybe is a few issues with 
actually implementing them they've given us reasons as to why that is the case and so it's seeing this increase in communication which has been incredibly positive yeah gotcha molly if i could uh sort of direct direct this one over to you um within this conversation of sort of violence and and sexual assault how can societies uh like the club of pep um help to create a sort of better conversation around sexual assault sort of sort of in in your view and in our brief uh tenure so far as co-presidents i really think it's just about reaching out um to campaigns like the last to be like we're obviously going to be working closely with them and just encouraging conversation as well like imogen you've said before it's just about asking questions and not being scared or defensive or anything like that it's just a learning process and being so open and I think if other societies reach out and are just doing the same thing as us I think that will be hugely helpful for um, the campaign and what you're working towards. Dom if you want to go ahead and take the take the next one there. Yep, sure. Uh, this is a question for, for Imogen. As again, we know that um, a lot of sexual assault and harassment takes place in the setting of, of clubs and, and, and the clubbing. Do you fear that it might increase um, uh, sexual assault and, and sexual harassment um, to a much larger scale than, than maybe we're, we're currently seeing um, during COVID when restrictions are finally re uh, reduced? What do you expect will happen there? Um, I think it's really difficult because as much as we'd like to, we're never going to eradicate sexual assault and harassment. Um, mm -hmm. All we can do is try and make the process of what you do after that um, more bearable. Um, I know that myself, um, The Last Taboo, and a number of other organisations on campus are working really hard to kind of implement a range of different things that will hopefully help to reduce um, the amount of sexual assault and harassment going on in clubs, things like bystander training, how to intervene if you witness this, how to call out um, toxic behaviours with your friends. Um, so I'm hopeful that with so many different groups on campus around and very present that it will help to kind of curb um, a potential spike in such awful behaviour um, in clubs. And those suggestions that you've just suggest, uh, suggested there, which might mitigate, um, you know, uh, sexual harassment and the, the impacts afterwards, um, have you yet noticed improvements since you've introduced those or are they is that kind of in the early stages of, of the conversation and, and planning for that kind of stuff in your organisation? Um, they're currently in the early stages. Um, we are looking at kind of using the summer to kind of really review and work out how we can make the most effective kind of content especially with um, freshers coming in at the start of the next academic year mm. and we also know that I think the university is something that they're also looking at and um, to make sure that students do feel as safe as possible and I think the large part of it is education um, conversations I have with a lot of people people don't realize that what they're doing is considered harassment or assault and so I think it's about really raising awareness of harmful behaviors and calling them out when you see them this ties into a, a a question that I had sort of around the more difficult cases of uh, he said, she said situations with without uh, evidence, especially when when alcohol is involved. Um, and so, say, for example, situation of of uh, a guy and a girl meet in a club, go back to his uh, afterwards uh, after quite a few to drink night out, that kind of a situation. 
afterwards, the the uh, the girl says that she was sexually assaulted or raped, and the guy says that it was consensual. Uh, what kind of response should that elicit from from us as individuals at this university, from the university, from the last taboo and support organizations? And uh, and it just uh, it's kind of a general approach question because I, I I kind of think that these those kind of cases are the most difficult when you don't have the evidence. Definitely. Um, This is when the uncomfortable nature of these conversations comes in and people do shy away. Um, And I think in an instance like this, if someone, say the victim or the the person who thought they'd been assaulted, um, came to you and said, this is what's happened. The first thing to do is listen. Um, Whether you think that they're telling the truth or not, you should always believe someone if they come to you. Because actually, when you look at the statistics surrounding false allegations and things like that, they're so small that you're actually, men are more likely to be assaulted than they are to have a false allegation made against them. So if someone comes to you in a situation like this, you sit there and you listen to them, you ask them if they need support, and that's when you signpost them. Unless you're a trained professional, there's only so much support you can give. You can help them find the right services for them, but also you can't force them to go and get support. They know what's right for them. And so the best thing you can do is to listen. Um, They really are uncomfortable cases. And in a he kind of a he said, she said situation, it's a nasty scenario for anyone to be in. But the best thing you can do is, is look after the person who's experienced the assault, because if that has really happened, they're going to need support and they're going to need help. Um, And I think kind of you mentioned these scenarios, especially when there's alcohol involved. I think if you are unable to be aware of your own behavior when you're drunk, then you shouldn't be drinking. You should never put yourself in a situation where you can't make sound decisions or you don't know what you're doing because that's dangerous for yourself, but also for the people around you. So I think that there's a level of responsibility there that if you you don't know that you're not going to assault someone on a night out when you're drunk, you should not be drinking. I think that's quite a kind of a clear cut answer. And I think it's even with alcohol, it, it's not a difficult thing to distinguish between right and wrong. Um, I don't know what your thought, thoughts are on that, Mark or Dom. I think that's I think that's pretty fair, and and as as the word you used there was was clear cut. I think um, in general, you know, what once you reach drinking age, there is such thing as a drinking age for a reason, and that's because um, you 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 gain the right, but you also gain the responsibility, and the responsibility is to be in control of your of your own person um, and of your actions, and um, and of and part of actions is is also verbal as well. And uh, I think if, if you lose that capacity when, once you're drinking, then, um, yeah, that is your responsibility. So, no, I, I totally agree with you. I think as well, just from the other side, I think it also, it's not just uh, for, like, male, but also women. Like, if you're drinking so much that you don't know what's going on, I know personally I never get to that stage because I just don't want to not remember anything or put myself in that vulnerable situation. So I think it can be, it goes both ways as well, definitely. What would you guys say is the is the limit when it comes to sort of alcohol and ability and agency to give consent? Where is that line or is it sort of uh, down to the individual, too difficult to draw, something like that? 
well, that that seems to me to be quite a personal thing. Mm. Different people have different drinking capacities, and you know the rule isn't don't get drunk. Um, the the rule is is don't lose all sense of reality, um, and and don't don't lose your capacity to function as a human being. As as a as a human being on a planet where there are other people, and you have to respect other people and acknowledge that they're there and that they have rights just as you have rights. Um, that you know alcohol. Um, or large quantities of alcohol does put a barrier between that, between those things. So um, no, you, you you can't say it's five and a half pints of beer. And once you've had 5.6, you're in trouble. I, I, don't, I don't think it's quite that. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think you're suggesting it is though, Mark. I, I think but it, as it's politics individual. students, we all try to quantify things. Don't we, we try to, we try to find that line. We try to try to get that good a- analytical, analytical part of our brains going and find that line but yeah that doesn't seem that doesn't seem right saying five and a half versus six there that's the the absolute limit no no it doesn't uh if we could sorry go ahead oh i was just gonna say for me it's if if i don't mix i can go a lot further without not remembering things but the more you mix as well say if i mix four drinks that's me gone that's the limit but not quantities the type gotcha but 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 uh when it when it's pims and then um and then mojitos that'll that that's okay that's both spirits yeah that'll that'll work that's one just just uh just not on a hot day right Uh, oh i left york about a week ago so the idea that i've got like three or four months without mojitos now can you please not mention mojitos in front of me We'll make sure we make uh, we make plenty when you come back. Uh, you'll you'll also Dom be missing out on the uh, on the on the drinks on Friday, unfortunately, the post podcast drinks. Uh, well, enjoy that, but you know ne- needs must. But yeah, no, enjoy mm-hmm. it. Uh, I don't know if you've got an, another question to ask, Mark. You go right ahead, Dom. Um, yeah, I wanted to ask a question that's slightly more in, into the longer term for the last taboo. We, we've heard from you, Imogen, that you've got big plans for this organization which is brilliant um what are your hopes for the last taboo at york next academic year yeah so we've actually just finished developing our york specific branch which has a committee of nearly 30 people which is amazing and they're all students at the uni of york um obviously we're really hopeful that the university will implement their action plan and stick to kind of what they've they've told students they're going to do but even with that this is only the first step into creating a safer space on campus and really tackling such an institutional attitude towards kind of a tolerance for sexual violence. So there is still a long, long way to go before the last debut and other organisations aren't needed anymore. And we're really Mm. hopeful to continue working with the university and kind of having that collaborative working relationship. Um, There's a lot of things that were brought up in our report that we are keen to focus a little bit more on things like lad culture was something that was quite prevalent um in the feedback we had from students but not something we've done huge amounts of research into so Mm. with our new research team on the committee we'd be really keen to kind of understand in a little bit more detail these issues and how they're affecting different students on campus you mentioned there um, a, a first intake of around 30 people which is which is obviously really impressive um but you know, your long-term aim is to massively limit um, the 
cases and the after effects of sexual harassment. But part of the um, process there is making the last taboo a, a reasonable um, and a large and really respected organisation. So, I mean, for people who want to know slightly more logistically how this organisation runs, uh, are you going to be having meetings? Uh, will you be uh, meeting for socials in person, things like that? How will it run? Um, yeah, so it is a closed committee for now, just because obviously there are so many people um, and it is our first um, specific branch that we're setting up. So we are still finding our feet a little bit, but we will be hopefully hosting socials once the restrictions have been lifted where non-committee members are more than welcome to join. Um, it's really about creating a very safe space. And whilst the aim of it is to tackle sexual violence, I don't want it to be something where the committee members are really kind of struggling to talk about it all the time. I want to create a safe space where people can still have fun and do nice things and meet new people um, and kind of make such a horrible issue into something that actually could have quite positive um, kind of after. Positive Sorry. cocktails. Yeah, yeah. That's the one. Yes. Yeah, because um, yeah, it's such a horrible issue, but it's amazing to kind of get some positive things out of it. In in this uh, sort of conversation around sexual assault and and sexual violence, there there are sort of words like and phrases like uh, like like you said, lad culture or toxic masculinity or or rape culture that that uh, I think for for guys especially can kind of like put you on your back foot. Like, oh, am am I involved in that? I don't think I'm involved in that. That isn't something that I do, and kind of immediately sort of sort of pushes you back, both because there's uh not a clear definition of what those terms mean and and also there there might be a kind of a, assumption um put on those phrases by guys that the assumption is that they are complicit and and that can have sort of negative impacts for guys that want to be involved in these kind of discussions um how do you think that those those kind of terms and the the issues around sort of toxic masculinity or, or rape culture should should be should be approached especially in the context of of uh of guys wanting to get more involved in these kind of issues yeah i think i mean it kind of goes without saying that this issue transcends gender. It's not something that only affects women. It's not something that only affects men. It can affect anybody. And I think that's really important to remember. Um, proportionally, it does affect women more than it affects men. And generally, men are the perpetrators. And I think it's only natural to kind of jump on a defensive when someone says something like, um, when you kind of talk about the statistics, I know with the recent statistics surrounding 97% of 18 to 24 year old women having experienced sexual harassment, the kind of instant response, but it's not all men. <laughs> and whilst it is not all men, it's nearly all women. And I think that it's phrases like not all men that are really harmful because it diverts the focus of the conversation. This conversation is not to make feel people feel better about themselves for not having assaulted someone it's there to try and actually stop it from happening because it happens too much. Um, and I think that it's about kind of being okay with feeling a little bit uncomfortable in a conversation. You know, I'm not a guy, so I don't know what it's like, but it, it is a really difficult thing because it, it definitely isn't all men, but that cannot be the focus of our conversation. Um, and I think it's, it's about asking those questions and being honest and listening, you know, having this chat today is really positive because 
you're sat and you're listening and you're asking questions or engaging with each other and it's a productive conversation where no one's feeling defensive no one's getting upset it's it's really kind of sorry <laughs> Tom is um, just putting the chat yeah. I'm not crying I'm sneezing <laughs> um but no it's it's a really productive discussion and that's what I think we need to have more of is productive discussions because that's the only way kind of everyone can learn together and we can't tackle this issue kind of one group versus another we have Mm -hmm. to work together as a whole community to stop it from happening yeah so then so then what what is uh and it might be sort of have different definitions but in your view, what exactly is rape culture and and how can sort of maybe well, well-meaning guys or just guys in general contribute to that sort of unwittingly, unknowingly? Yeah, I think, again, this is where education comes into play. You know, things like catcalling, it's, I've had numerous conversations with people um, about catcalling and they go, oh, but it's a compliment. Or, you know, if you walk down the street and you're told smile more, you know, people think that's a compliment, but actually they're kind of microaggressions towards um, perpetuating this kind of culture. And the rape culture idea is often kind of centered around victim blaming and it kind of taking the blame away from a perpetrator when that is where the blame should lie. And so it, it's often a case of ignorance, which um, kind of enables people to be complicit within such a culture. But then, then where is the connection between sort of the instances of, of rape culture or toxic masculinity and instances of sexual violence? Or is that harder to pin down? I think it's quite hard to pin down because whilst we kind of have definitive terms of sexual harassment, sexual assault, rape, there's a lot that kind of interlinks with all of those. And it isn't quite so clear cut with this is this, this is that, if that makes sense. It's, it's, a lot more kind of malleable and there's a lot of things that happen which are things that you couldn't report to the police you couldn't report because by law they're not deemed as anything illegal but actually can make someone's well-being really it can really affect someone's well-being and it can often make them feel scared or vulnerable or like they're doing something wrong um if you take the Sarah Everard case that was a horrific case where she did all of the things that women are told to do to keep themselves safe she wore bright colors you know she wore trainers and she was covered up those are things that we're instructed to do to keep ourselves safe and this is part of the problem when you add to this discussion it reinforces this idea that it's a woman's responsibility to stop herself being assaulted or harassed in the street when actually that responsibility is on the person who chooses to assault someone or harass someone can i just pick up on something there you spoke earlier about um about uh, the whole not all men thing and how it's natural for people to jump on the defensive when, um, you know, uh, so for, so for me, for example, I'm a man, I might have jumped on the def- defensive if, if I heard the stats that most of the perpetrators are men because I am a man. But th- that's a very, as you say, you rightly say, that's a very difficult thing to deal with is that people's emotional first responses are um, might well be um to defend themselves uh, and that can cause arguments and, and raised voices and, and much further than that. Um, how, how can, how can we get through to people who are immediately defensive? 
I think it's a really difficult one because you can only do so so much. It is up to that person um, to see whether they're willing to listen. Um, And if they're not willing to listen and to learn, then unfortunately, there isn't really very much anybody can do to change that person's perspective on things. Um, Molly, I'm not sure whether you have kind of anything you'd add to that. I was just going to say, like, obviously, with the 97% thing, it's almost natural to assume that that 97% of women matches up with 97% of men sexually harass people. But it's not. Like, one person, one man can sexually harass 10 women. And I think it's to overcome being defensive, you have to still listen and learn to be able to call out that one person who is harassing a lot of women rather than assuming that it's 97% of men because we all know it's not. Um, I think it is becoming more, people are becoming less defensive, but it is just changing that perspective um, and looking at the stats differently rather than jumping to assumptions. But then that that takes time for people to start doing mm-hmm. that as well. Perception does kind of, does seem a little bit, a little bit like the key in being able to put yourself uh, as a man in, in the, the shoes of a woman and the other way around as well in, in how uh, you, you approach these conversations. Because you can see like a, a, a situation of, of trying to, trying to approach a guy with this, with this question of like, well, how would you feel if you were cat called on the street? And then a guy might be like, ah, that, that'd be great. You know, there's that, there's that kind of, I don't know, loud, loud response, uh, that I, I guess sort of comes from a different socialization and a different upbringing with, uh, in, in relation to these questions. And it can, it is difficult to kind of put yourselves, uh, put myself or for Dom or for any guy to put put themselves in in the shoes of a woman and and, and even even if you try to actually find that understanding that can be like it's, it seemed to be very tough. I think definitely it's not an easy thing to do and and unfortunately you probably can't share in our experiences but that doesn't mean you can't try and understand why behaviours are wrong. And I think that trying to actually put yourselves in in someone else's shoes is is the most effective way you can learn why that's harmful to someone. Um, And I think we all just need to work together more to tackle such a horrible thing. It really does affect everybody because whilst, say, a guy might not have been directly affected by sexual violence but he'll be friends with people who have been and you want to make sure that you're educated enough to know how to support that person through something like that what kind of um what kind of stigma do you think that there is around i mean sort of the sort of the flip side but within this discussion for for guys who might have experienced um sexual violence or sexual assault and and coming forward and and reporting that and what kind of damage do you think that that is that's doing to this sort of attempt to 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 create more openness i think you know earlier we were kind of talking about the labels that get thrown around things like toxic toxic masculinity but it is things like that that contribute to this you know men are so much less likely to report being sexually harassed or sexually assaulted because with it comes kind of this stigma of oh I should be ashamed and embarrassed that that's happened to me when actually you shouldn't be ashamed or embarrassed that that's happened to you because it's not your fault 
and I think this is the thing it it also is the case that sometimes men get laughed at when they try and report something like this and that also adds to this kind of defensiveness because they're not taken seriously and I think that's really really problematic because it again creates this culture of, of kind of a divide between women being assaulted and men being perpetrators and actually that's not the case. Do you think that the that the sort of physical strength difference between between men and women uh, creates uh, contributes to that stigma as well, or is it is it more just the kind of toxic masculinity, like oh, I don't want to admit to, to this having happened to me, or I'll be laughed at, or do you think it's genuine power differences um, that contribute to it as well? I think there's a lot of different factors that contribute to kind of this men versus women divide and I think perhaps like physical power is part of that but I do think it's it's more of a cultural thing and a socialized thing um I think if we kind of empowered men to speak out about what's happened to them that we could actually change the narrative of this issue and I think that would be something really positive but again it's kind of breaking down such a toxic framework to rebuild it in a way that is actually helpful for society that's not an easy thing to do it's all it will take a lot of time and fortunately not everyone will be responsive to such big changes yeah i gotcha so we're uh, we're sort of getting over to the over to the end of uh of the questions i kind of prepared here dom i don't know i don't know if you have any any more there i, I apologize to ruin the flow of your podcast but i'm afraid i don't no worries, no worries. I do got I do got one um one that's sort of directed at both uh Imogen and Molly here. So for for the question of what it what it means to be uh, an ally, um what does it look like? For, so Molly first, what does it look like for uh institutions and clubs like the Club of Pep to be an ally in this conversation? I think it just means to listen, never put never tell someone that what they feel is wrong. And to always be inclusive and signpost if someone comes forward, never ever reject someone or invalidate what they what they think or what has happened to them. Um, just to have respect for all members and yeah, to signpost correctly so people can get support and they, they feel like they have the backing of the club or the society. I think that does wonders knowing that mm-hmm. you've got people behind you. Yeah, I gotcha. And then, uh, and then, Imogen, same question, but just for uh, for for guys in general to kind of summarize what we've been talking about. I think it's quite similar to Molly. Even on an individual level, it is about kind of listening and not telling someone that they're wrong. I think you know, really listening to women and other marginalized voices around you is so important because their experiences are things that you will never have firsthand. Kind of experience with and I think also having actively a zero tolerance kind of policy within yourself for these behaviors if you see one of your mates doing something that looks a bit suspicious call them out on it don't just sit there and let them do it you know if one of your friends looks like they're harassing someone in a club go over to them and say really is that necessary and you know really kind of make sure that you are kind of standing in solidarity with victims and doing everything you can safely to make sure that people around you are safe. I think as well, just on that, because I know that some some guys might not want to call their mates out in that in the moment. 
for fear if they've had a drink, them having a bad reaction, but even just pulling them out of that situation, taking them away, be like, oh, come on, let's get another drink. And then explaining to them the next day that what they did was wrong. Like, don't have that much to drink. Like, you can't do that. I think that's important as well. Like, if you are, if you don't want, you don't have to confront in the moment. You can just be a barrier between that person and what might happen. Definitely. I think it's all about doing what is safe. Um, Never put yourself for anyone, guy, girl, anybody. Don't put yourself in a position where you're risking your own safety. Um, But I I think it's just taking responsibility for yourself and for the people you associate yourself with and have around you and really working together to make sure that we are kind of changing this culture and replacing it with a really positive and safe one. And I think this has been, I mean, a a very productive uh, narrative and conversation. And I think that comes from sort of the openness that we've all approached these questions with, but that isn't, that isn't universal. And, and there's a, there's a segment of, of, uh, I guess this conversation where it does end up being a bit men versus women and the response to intransigence on the part of men to listen becomes, oh, all men are trash or those kind of, those kind of lines. Uh, well, where's the fault in that kind of assessment? And, and what would you tell um, maybe, maybe a, a, a friend or a, a girlfriend that has that kind of view uh, to, to convince them to get more onto the uh, more openness and, um, and I guess kind of trial and error approach, approach to this, these conversations. I think it's a really personal thing because if someone has been impacted by this issue, you know, it is natural for them to find it really difficult to talk about or talk about the topic more generally. And so Mm -hmm. it's something you have to approach with quite a lot of caution and respect um, for the people around you. You know, we're really lucky that the four of us can sit here and have this conversation and no one's upset, no one's angry. You know, it's been a really productive conversation, like you said, but it, it is perhaps not so clear cut how you can kind of change someone's perspective because you don't know their own personal experiences um while I say that for those that maybe are kind of able to reset their view or kind of standpoint on something it is again about having an open discussion and if someone does start to get angry or get defensive you ask why, let them explain themselves and then try and build that constructive narrative into that conversation instead of kind of one person shouting at another and actually neither of you are listening to each other. Um, I think, yeah, listening is the only way we're going to learn. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Can completely agree there. And I, uh, I think that, that, that uh, that's definitely my, um, my last question here. So I think that uh, Dom, if you don't have anything else or Molly and Imogen, anything else to bring up? Um, Just that if anyone has been affected by sexual violence and does need support, um, there is a list of support services on the Last Taboo's website, which is thelastaboo.co.uk. There is also a section on the university website for anyone who wants to go through the university processes. I'll make sure I link the uh, the last taboo in the description of the podcast, so you can you can find it down there in the, in the description. Um, we'll add the uh, we'll add the last taboo website to the Club of Pep link tree as well. So if you want to go through any of the Club of Pep socials to access that too. Yeah, yeah, perfect, perfect. And 
But I, I think that uh, that that wraps up our uh, our conversation here nicely. So I'd like to say thanks again to um, Molly and Imogen and, and Dom for coming on. It's been great. Thanks very much. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for coming, Imogen, and having this conversation with the Club of Pat too. It's been great. And thank you for having me. Thank you for being kind of so willing and open to talk about such a difficult thing. It's been great. See you guys next time.